So hello and welcome. This is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 216. Today is Friday, July the 21st. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, the subjects were submitted over the past week from viewers just like you. Please look down in the video description below and you'll see exactly what things we're discussing in order. So what else is going on? It is 69 degrees Fahrenheit. Not bad because I know a lot of the country is frying right now. Super hot. Record high temperatures, but 69.3 here. 4.7 mile per hour winds. One inch of rain. People all around us got really doused. There was flooding to the south, flooding to the north. Golf ball sized hail. So a lot of people really got it yesterday. I escaped. Not even one beehive flew over. So it's 80% 80, 80 relative humidity, which means that your bees will be bearding again, of course, as they try to dry out the nectar that they're bringing in. And uh, the weekend ahead looks really good. So if you're here in the northeastern United States, you're probably going to get a pretty nice, warm, dry weekend, 75 to 79 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's a good time to work your bees. Thank goodness. Yesterday, with all the storms coming through, guess how many lightning strikes we had? 193. My grandson was at the weather station watching every lightning strike to see how close it was. They came within eight miles. And that's a lot of lightning strikes. Air quality, by the way, the fire in Canada. We have good air quality today, at least where I am. Other parts of the country, not so lucky. Fire smoke is still coming down, but here we're at 27 parts per million. So that's about it for that. Let's get started. The very first question comes from Steve, Glen Allen, Virginia. I have a question concerning lantern moths. They're just arriving here just outside of Richmond, Virginia, and I understand they produce something called honeydew, which honeybees love. I also understand this will cause the honey the bees make to taste terrible. Here, most of us have processed the spring flow, and the question becomes, as the bees in the honeydew as the bees bring in the honeydew from the lantern moths and store it, do I need to be concerned about moving it around the next spring? In other words, the bees moving it around in the hive itself the next spring. And guess what this is right here? This is honeydew honey. That's right, this was given to me from uh, Home Sweet Comb Honey Farm in Columbia, New Jersey. So thank you for that gift, by the way. What is honeydew honey? Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about honeydew in general because it's a byproduct of insects that are feeding on plants. So, and it's interesting calling this a lantern moth. Most people know it as the spotted lantern fly. Penn State University is doing a whole lot of studies on that. One of those I am participating in. And we use, so this is one of the ways that we use honey to find out if the lantern fly is even in your area. And the reason is just like aphids. So think of aphids when they're on a tree. And uh, I might have shown a few in the opening sequences today uh, because I've been out paying attention to them. Aphids are on our goldenrod right now. There were also a bunch of them on milkweed. What do aphids have to do with honeybees? Well, did you know that honeybees are related to ants, another social insect? Ants actually uh, protect the aphids on the plants in exchange for the honeydew that comes from the aphids. So in other words, as the aphids feed on the plant, they have mouth parts that allow them to penetrate the outside of the plant and get into 
the interior that gives them nectar, minerals, and a lot of other things that uh, they utilize to reproduce, right? But it also makes the plants anemic, so it's damaging to the plant, which is why we don't want aphids in our gardens and things like that. So a lot of things eat aphids. One of those would be um, the ladybugs, which some people call lady beetles because they're beetles, and there are several varieties of those. So I'm actually photographing ladybugs over the past week. Uh, what's that got to do with bees? Well, it's interesting to watch the aphids extrude or excrete a clear liquid uh, that allows them to take in more of the minerals because they're after the concentrate and what they're getting rid of is the watery sweet substance that we come to know as honeydew. So the same thing happens with the spotted lantern fly, which was brought here by somebody into the United States who felt like they had to buy stone for their patio uh, from abroad instead of just getting stoned from right here. And guess what? Spotted lanternfly eggs came with them. At least that's the story I was told. Now here's the thing. They uh, feed upon plants like Tree of Heaven, which is one of the plants that they tell people to watch for, to see if the aphids, or not aphids, but spotted lanternflies are collecting on them and they collect by the thousands and they lay their eggs and then of course they damage the tree but I'm told that nobody cares about the tree of heaven so if they're wiping those out it's not that big a deal but they also go to other plants like grape pines so for grape farmers vineyards things like that will suffer profound damage in my state of Pennsylvania and abroad because they're spreading they spread on trucks and things like that now as the spotted lantern flies feed they have the same kind of mouth parts that drill through that woody outside layer, the bark, and then they get into it and they start to consume the resources of the plant that they're on. The byproduct of that is, it's contrary to what is said in the question here that the honey is terrible. Some people actually like the flavor of the honey. And some people say it has a slightly smoky taste or some people say that it just has a strong mineral taste. But uh, the thing of it is, they're allowing the honeybees to access sugary nectar from plants that they otherwise can't get to. Why is that? Well, because, for example, let's take grapevines. Uh, when the grapes are in their flowering state, uh, bees don't benefit from that. So they don't get pollen and nectar from grape flowers. And uh, the grapes themselves, as they age on the vine, if they split and they, you know, they leak and things like that, then of course the bees can access those, but they get more from the spotted lantern flies while they feed on trees and grapevines and other plants that bees don't have access to the bees have learned that they can get that sugary sap honeydew as a byproduct of those insects feeding on those trees and plants and uh, any plant that leaks um, nectar and sugary sap onto its surface Honeybees are scouts uh, that go out and they find it when they find it and they find out that it's liquid, that there's a sugar content that's beneficial to them. They fly home, they do their waggle dance, and they bring a bunch of other bees with them. And before you know it, they're licking that sugary substance off the surface of the trees or plants. And it doesn't take them long to figure out that the source of that was another insect. And honeybees, I don't know if you've ever seen them. When they really zoom in on a sugary source, they get in a feeding frenzy. They don't get all excited like that over pollen. I mean, they collect pollen and they'll gather to collect pollen. If you have pollen substitutes, you've probably seen that happen. But when it comes down to sugary nectar, they actually fight over it. So it's not much of a stretch that they would actually lick this nectar 
as it comes out of the spotted lanternfly. So that is honeydew honey. So when they put that in there, hey, I wonder if you put this on the, it doesn't say honeydew honey. It just says honey and the net weight, 16 ounces. Interesting. I think uh, if we knew it to be honeydew, but most people just say honey, wildflower honey, but you may be having to include um, lanternfly honeydew as part of the honey resource. So that's really interesting. And the study that I'm a part of is we are just sampling honey weekly and we're sending that in collectively. So not every week we don't ship it, but we collect a bunch of samples. We're sending them into Penn State for analysis and they will look at the honey and they will derive the information they need that will let them know if our bees are accessing honeydew honey. And then that way they'll know that the spotted lanternfly has reached our area. I think it's just inevitable that it's eventually going to get around. They don't know how to control them yet. And they've asked for people to destroy them when they find them and also to report it to your agricultural extension office. So there's that. Um, so in other words, the question becomes, if they bring in honeydew from lantern moths to store it, do I need to be concerned about moving it around in the hive next spring? I wouldn't. I don't think we're worried about it. Plus, it's not your only nectar source. It's just a boost. It's one of a lot of others. So your bees are still going to be bringing in nectar from other floral sources that you're familiar with. And I would expect it to be pretty diluted. And uh, it's nothing to worry about because where did it come from? Plants. It's still nectar from plants. It's still plant sap or something like that. So I consider that to be pretty normal. There's no detriment that I know of other than the fact that it may alter the flavor of your honey. So, and not in a bad way, by the way, the person that gave this to me liked it a lot and so do a lot of other people. So maybe it's an acquired taste because there's buckwheat honey, for example, that's very strong and very dark. And some people don't like that. Some people only like clover and the light honeys and the mild flavored honeys. So you would just have to add that to your list of distinctive flavors in honey and there will be people that want it and there will be people that would like to avoid it simply because in their head, the very idea of getting honey from some excreted liquid from an insect bothers them. So doesn't bother me at all. So question number two comes from David uh, Blenheim, New York. Question in regards to honey extractors. There is a ball bearing in the bottom of the drum where the shaft of the frame basket sits on. What type of lubricant should be used in the hole where the ball bearing sits? I was looking up food grade grease, but I read that it should not be used where it could be in contact directly with food. So what should be used to lubricate the ball bearing that is safe and will not contaminate the honey? Okay, so when it comes to uh, contamination of the honey, anything that your honey comes in contact with, any surface, uh, potentially will contribute to the honey itself. But when we're talking about the extractors, let's look at extractor design. A lot of them, if you're a backyard beekeeper, you might have a plastic hand crank style extractor. Um, if you've bumped up a little bit from that, which I have, and I have an electric all stainless steel extractor, they do have lubricant. So there's something I want you to know about both lubricant and the design of the extractor that you're using. So how would the design matter? So where is the ball bearing located? If you look at the bottom, there's a central shaft that goes down and these are standard. There are radial and tangential extractors. And in big industry, of course, there are big horizontal 
tangential and radial extractors, but there are huge tangential extractors out there. Uh, but what I want you to notice is, um, first of all, yes, use food grade certified for food contact lubricant. But there's another part of that. Your honey shouldn't actually reach that point where the ball bearing is and where your central shaft sits on it. And if you look at the shape of your extractor, usually it's conical. So in other words, you see a big cylinder. And then if you look underneath, the bottom of your extractor actually comes up like an inverted funnel. And then sticking up from that is a receiver for the shaft or in some of the very inexpensive ones, there's kind of a pointed piece of steel, stainless, I hope, that another piece of steel sits on and that becomes your lubrication point. But here's the thing. If that point is in the center and that's the highest point in the bottom of your extractor and then the extractor itself contours down so that the honey drips and remains on the outside because what else is on the outside? Your draining spigot, right? Your honey spigot. So the whole point is that I'd like to get across to you is first of all, avoid contact with that at all. And the way you do it is while you're extracting that honey gate is open. The honey gate's open the whole time. So as the honey spins off, slings to the outside walls, goes to the bottom, it runs out before the honey even gets to the height where it would make contact with where you're lubricating your ball bearing, right? So that's step number one is just the honey won't be in contact with it unless you're one of those people who keeps that honey gate closed until the honey goes all the way up and starts to slow down the baskets from turning, okay? That's not what you're supposed to do. But if you did it, then you would definitely have your honey in contact with the lubrication there. So there's something called H3 lubricants. And H3 is a certification for food grade lubricants that are certified to be in contact with food. In other words, this stuff could ultimately end up in the food that you're going to eat or that you're providing to someone else, right? So some examples of H3 lubricants would be vegetable oils like soybean oil, canola oil, corn oil, or sunflower oil. Edible mineral oils like white mineral oil or light mineral oil. And then of course there's silicone, right? So those are, in other words, approved so that if you were going to end up consuming it somehow, if a little bit of that got into your honey, it would not ruin the fact that your honey is edible, food grade, and certified, right? Um, but I'd like you to keep in mind what I just mentioned about the configuration of your extractor and try to keep your honey from getting up to that joint or that point of lubrication in the first place. Then you should still use the high quality H3 lubricants, but uh, keep your honey away from it unless you want to take the chance that a little bit of that could end up in your honey. But if it did, I don't think it would be enough to really impact anything, but that's the answer to that question. Question number three comes from David from Cleveland, Ohio. I have two types of cane sugar. One is white, the other is tan in color. It's not brown sugar and the bag does say it's bone and char free. Would it be safe to use to make sugar syrup for our bees? So the processed sugar, if you're making sugar syrup for your bees, and for those of you who don't understand, why on earth would you be feeding sugar syrup to your bees? Well, maybe there's a dearth. Maybe your bees are struggling. Maybe like a lot of areas around uh, this time of year, um, there's no nectar in the environment. And so of course the bees are having troubles getting the carbohydrates they need to have the energy necessary to keep their colonies cool on these really hot days. So a couple of things you need for your bees 
to keep cool on hot days wherever you are in this country or the world as far as that goes. They need fresh water. Fresh water is what they're going to use to stay hydrated and of course to evaporate off the surfaces of the comb and areas inside the hive which act as a coolant system, right? So they're fanning it, they're evaporating it. That uses energy. So that energy requires a carbohydrate. The carbohydrate is the sugar, okay? So that's sucrose. And here's the thing. Uh, plain white sugar, is that nutritionally valuable? No, it's carbohydrate. It's a straight energy source. So number one on your list of what you should be mixing up for your bees is processed cane white sugar and uh, water. And I give that one to one by weight. That's not critical either, okay? But uh, it gives them the carbohydrates they need for the energy necessary to cool the hive because let's face it, they're using a lot of energy to stay cool just as they use a lot of energy in the wintertime to stay warm and that's the purpose of honey. So when you have coloration, if it's brown, and I don't know anything about this uh, brown colored cane sugar, but if it's not white, in other words, if it's not completely processed to the point where there's nothing in it but sucrose, then the other things become particulates in the digestive system of the bees. Now, during the summertime, periods of dearth, things like that, I don't consider that to be a huge problem. And the reason is your bees can fly out and do a cleansing flight anytime they want to. So the more particulates there are, it actually builds up in their digestive system. And when it does that, the bees have to go out and they have to eliminate whatever's built up in their digestive system. So in the summertime, not a problem. This time of year, no problem. So I would consider those equal. Now, when you're going into winter and you're preparing them, if you've got a profound dearth and you have to give a heavy sugar syrup because you want your bees to build up resources because you tilted that hive at the end of the year and it was very light and bees without carbohydrates in the wintertime are not going to make it. They absolutely have to have that resource and that's when you if you've not saved enough honey on for them in fact a lot of people this year depending on what the climate is like and what the rainfall has been for us it's been very light um, we may not have a lot of surplus honey for the bees but what they do store up should not be taken by people unless your bees have created more than they need to get through winter so number one to get your bees through winter is the honey that they've stored I'm a backyard beekeeper. I don't care about getting a big honey crop at the end of the year to pay my bills. So I'm in a very different position. Uh, this is why a lot of commercial and sideline beekeepers take all the honey that they can find. Uh, they take all the supers off and then they load it back on several gallons of sugar syrup per hive. And it doesn't sound very effective, but the thing of it is, it restores weight to the hive and makes your bees more robust as they go into winter. And the thinking is, of course, the return on your investment. The sugar syrup that you're going to purchase is a fraction of the cost when compared to the money that you could yield from honey that's produced from your hives. So for the backyard beekeeper, again, the only colonies that I'm going to feed or put sugar syrup on uh, are those that demonstrate that they're not capable of building up on their own or they're a brand new a uh, swarm that's been collected and as it just happened, as soon as you hive that swarm, all of a sudden uh, we had bad weather for two weeks or something and there's nothing in the environment for them. Which is counter to triggers for bees swarming in the first place. They tend to swarm when times are good. Absconding and swarming are two different things. And I have had a few people ask me why their bees left entirely. So if they run out of resources 
And uh, this is a trait that uh, some specific lines of bees have. If they find that they're in an environment that isn't providing everything they need, and the beekeeper is likewise not supplementing their resources so that they can afford to stay there. And by that, I mean affording the loss of calories. So when these bees are in profound decline, they actually can abscond. They can leave that hive completely and seek out a new environment that has the resources they need. So they might fly south or west or wherever they found their other nectar resources available. And that's a very common trait of the Africanized honeybees, for example. They just pack up and ship out and go to wherever resources are, which is why they spread so fast. So um, providing them with the sugar resources that they need, if they don't have anything else, I think is just a humane thing to do to keep that colony alive. Another thing that you can do is if you've got a struggling small colony and uh, another colony that's doing really well, and this is what's interesting about honeybees. One of the many things that's interesting about honeybees. You can have hives in the exact same environment side by side. And you can see that one colony is doing fantastic. They're full of nectar, resources, even the pollen that they're bringing in is very consistent. And they're finding these resources really well in the environment. But then you'll have a colony right next to that that is not sourcing what it needs the same way. They don't forage the same places, they're not foraging on the same flowers, and they're not bringing in the same amount of resources. So it is very interesting, but that's also good for the bees. For example, if one of the resources they went to turned out to be toxic, the colony that goes to that resource would come back and show the impact of toxins, pesticides, specifically insecticides even. So they could come back and be dying off. So the safety factor is that they don't all forage in the same places. So the colony right next to them can continue to do well. So then it's up to you to decide uh, if you want to keep nurturing along a colony that struggles in the environment that you're keeping it in. And if you don't want to, then it's an opportunity for you to combine that weaker colony with a stronger colony that is successful. And when you do that, you would remove the queen. So combining weaker colonies with a queen right colony that's doing really well is one way to handle that. So the, the reason I bring all this up is rethinking why you're giving them sugar and why it matters. And uh, as far as the color of the sugar, white sugar is best, in my opinion, studies have been done. And uh, the coloration in sugar means that something is still there, something's added, some material that uh, your bees will have to process and of course eliminate from their system eventually. So, but the purpose of it, emergency resource, carbohydrate, keeps them going. Question number four, this is from Sylvia Stockholm, Sweden. Let's see, uh, new at beekeeping since this year, uh, May of this year. So first, I, uh, the hive I have uh, is full of great mellow bees and uh, they have no problems. Second hive created 10 covered queen cells. We made an artificial swarm from the original queen with one third of the hive. The remaining two thirds, we split into two nukes that rose new queens. So they raised new queens in those nukes. A week and a half later, the hive with the old original queen started swarming. We managed to catch her in midair and put her in a new hive when it turned out there was already a new queen in the hive from where they wanted to swarm from. Now, a week and a half later, I found an open queen cell in the hive with the original queen. Though the cell would be capped today, 
plan to send the original queen to bee heaven since I felt the bees were very clear about not wanting this queen. And today, when I wanted to give the old queen her funeral, the bees had started to decimate and dismantle the queen cell with the queen pupa inside. At the same time, I saw a new queen cell that wasn't there yesterday, uh, but that looked to be torn down. Perhaps they were building it. Now I'm not sure what's going on in the hive and what I can do about it. So this does happen from time to time. You get anxious, you see some new queen cells being developed, and uh, you find that uh, you need to get the existing queen out of there or you're gonna lose her. So when you remove that queen while they're building other queen cells, because going through and smashing or removing or cutting out queen cells is kind of touch and go. You could miss one and they could still kick out the queen. But uh, it has happened before when I've gone in similar to this, when I was going to remove the frames that had queen cells in production and of course create nucleus or resource hives that would guarantee queens later on if this colony uh, did not continue to maintain the current queen. But I've gone back there and as described here, I found that these uh, queen cells were just gone altogether. So often they chew them up. And one of the questions here was, can't tell if the queen cell was in production or if it's actually being dismantled by the bees. So when they chew it up themselves, they tend to chew into it from the sides and it looks really rough. If it's being built at every stage of development, the leading edge of your queen cell looks like it's nicely finished and worked over. If it's chewed and torn a little bit and it's rough looking, then that's an example of uh, a queen cell that's being chewed apart or dismantled. So it does happen sometimes that they change their minds because environmental cues like resources, storms, temperature, and things like that can make these bees change their mind. And when they do that, the resident queen remains and then they just get rid of even developing queen pupa. So it's interesting and it can happen, but my method for handling that, in other words, what would I personally do? Um, if I find a bunch of queen cells and I do come across a resident queen in the colony ahead of time, before they're capped, um, then I'll pull that queen on her frame and I'll put her right in a nucleus colony, a nucleus hive box, three to five frames. And uh, I keep her there as an insurance policy because what's going to happen and what's happening for a lot of people right now their hives have swarmed and when the new queens come out, they have to mature and then they have to fly off and do mating flights. And sometimes it's a single mating flight. Some people have observed more than one mating flight. But when they fly out, they have to get mated and then they have to make it back to that hive and they have to start laying eggs. If they fail, they end up queenless. So we're gonna talk about it a little bit too because there's other people that have questions along this line. But for this circumstance, even though they appear to have dismantled their queen cells, sometimes queen cells can be very neatly embedded in the comb to the point where it just looks like a little thicker comb, a little heavier on the edge. And unless you're really um, accustomed to looking and noticing exactly where queen cells are hidden and you're gonna pull every brood frame um, to make sure that there isn't a queen cell, then even when you cut out the queen cells you know about, there could still be one, or there could be one that just emerged, and then you're in a pickle because your other queen is gone already or swarmed already, or the one that you harvest thinking that it's the resident queen, unless you really know them or have marked them, you could be pulling out a virgin queen into your nucleus hive with these other queen cells still in progress. Either way, it becomes an insurance policy, so your chances are much better. 
Um, I did have one colony that failed to produce a um, queen that flew, mated, and came back, and they were queenless, and I'm going to talk about that at the end of today. But that's what I would do. Um, the other thing is, if you're worried about living in an urban area, as described here by Sylvia, and you want to ensure that your bees don't swarm, removing the queen does knock that flat. Another thing that you can do is you can cage your queen if you're sure that uh, you've got the queen and that the queen cells are non-existent. That also becomes an insurance policy, but you're keeping her on a single frame right in the hive. And my website, thewaytobe.org, there's a page marked my queen caging process. And I use it to reduce brood numbers, to create a brood break this time of year so that we can do an oxalic acid vaporization treatment if that colony has a high number of varroa destructor mites. But also that method could be used to reduce the number of the bees, the nurse bees, the workers, and everything else in your hive to one frame. And that way it keeps them from being overly congested and therefore removes one of the stimulants for that colony to swarm. So you can kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, by reducing brood and also having an opportunity to treat for varroa mites if you have them. But uh, in an urban area, uh, because it also says here, uh, my apiary is by my house in an urban setting with lots of neighbors. I need to have nice bees and avoid having them swarm and scare people that don't know bees. Any suggestions on what to do with the hive with the queen? Okay, so um, you can wait and see, but I would pull and create an insurance policy nucleus hive and cause a break in their production and help reduce that swarming propensity. And then once you're sure they're not, they're, another queen doesn't exist, a few weeks down the road, they aren't uh, laying eggs, you don't see any examples of um, open larvae and things like that, then you can restore the queen that you pulled apart and you put in for your, um, for your nucleus, your insurance policy. And what would you do with the spaces left this is something that I've not liked in the past, but I'm thinking more about it because one of the things that happens when we pull out a queen and uh, brood and things like that is we have to replace those frames. Otherwise, they'll make a bunch of feral comb. So here's what I suggest as a placeholder for the frames that you will later put back with your queen once you've pulled her out temporarily. You can put in frame feeders and some of the frame feeders will occupy single spaces, others occupy the space of two frames. So you have a couple of choices here. Um, you don't even have to fill your frame feeders with any feed. You use them as placeholders so that when you're pulling out these frames as insurance policies until you're sure that you got your queen out of there and that uh, you're reducing brood and you do your treatment or whatever method you're trying to do, then you can remove those again and put the frames back when you reunite your nucleus queen and of course the bees that you've left in the colony that you took her from. And then likewise in the nuke that you're putting her in, my all of my nukes are standard five frame deeps. Once again, if I just want to move two or three frames, I can use um, frame feeders again as placeholders that occupy the space and reduce that nucleus hive even more to just a couple of frames if I'm just trying to ensure that I have a resource if this colony loses its queen. So there are a lot of ways to manipulate that and have them available 
and uh, swap things back as needed. If they both succeed and they both produce queens, first of all, that means that you failed to find the queen cells that you thought you had. And you need to do all of this in less than three weeks. And the reason is that in the absence of the queen, in the absence of a productive uh, new replacement queen in the hive also, uh, after the three weeks, you run the risk of having laying workers. So we'll avoid that by doing this all in three weeks and then reuniting them and let us know what you decide and how it goes. Question number five. This comes from James in Bothell, Washington. Okay, um, let's see. Is it acceptable to brew antiviral Ganoderma lucidum mushroom tea for my bees? Okay, so, and then it goes on to say Washington State University and Paul Stamets have done tremendous research in the area of fungi. And I'm going to mess this up, but Ganoderma lucidum lucidum or antiviral properties and killing mites. I can't even pronounce the words, but anyway, um, I know what Paul Stamets is doing and uh, I follow his work and I follow the research that's being done by a lot of people that are associated with Paul. And uh, when I was interviewing um, the owner of Best for Bees in Canada and talking about uh, the microbiome of the bees and health and nutrition and things like that, um, she spoke about the research people that are working with Paul Stamens. And the thing is, um, first of all, let's address the first part. Can I put out mushroom tea? Uh, you can put out anything for your bees that you think might be helpful because the bees can let you know whether they want it or not. And when you're feeding that out, what we would consider in the poultry industry, free choice. You know, So you put out calcium and crushed oyster shells and granite grit and things like that. The chickens go around and pick what they need. They know what they need. Same thing with the honeybees. If you want to put this stuff out and uh, let your bees choose if they want to use that or not, because we know, for example, uh, bees go into the woods and there'll be pulpy wood after a rain and things like that. And you'll see the honeybees on it getting their drink from that. And likewise, mushrooms and things like that that are wet might be passing on some beneficial things to your bees. Uh, we don't know. They kind of know. I know that when it comes to varroa mite control, in other words, they're trying to find out if there's a fungus that they can use to kill varroa mites. And that fungus does exist, okay? But here's the problem. Uh, it doesn't survive the climate inside the beehive. So that's part of it, uh, where the bees reside, where we need it to be effective and where we would need it to be used. Um, the research is still ongoing. So Paul came out early years ago and even had a honeybee feeder that I was very interested in. This is why I reached out to him. This is why I contacted um, that whole, um, his website, contacted through that. I wanted to know about the feeder, what they're going to put in it, how it's going, what's the progress like. And right now you're getting radio silence and all of that because um, they're at a stumbling block. And they're not the only ones working on it right now. So there is work to get uh, mushroom-derived fungus that will attack and kill varroa destructor mites. So it's very interesting, but uh, right now it's a wait and see. But as far as putting things out, like, see, I don't know anything about this antiviral lucidum mushroom tea, um, but I do know that uh, we don't have any conclusions right now. Even uh, I did some research to find out if there were current papers and studies where it had been successful, and I wasn't able to find any. 
just that there's ongoing research. Some of the people are making claims that uh, derivatives from mushrooms and other fungi are um, helping bees and things like that, but they were not supported by scientific validation and research. So it's a wait and see thing. I'm hopeful. You know, Paul does great work, but if you notice, if you go to the website now, Fungi Perfecti is the um, website, I believe. And uh, you'll find out that he's selling supplements for humans primarily. So to make you better. So question number six comes from Trish in Westburg, uh, Colorado. Oh, I'm sorry. Craig, Colorado. Do you continue to inspect each hive every seven to 10 days throughout the entire summer, even with flow supers and regular medium supers on top of your brood boxes? I don't inspect any hive weekly. Um, your key time, and I kind of gave a hint to that earlier on today, you need to, uh, if you want to be aware of queenlessness, that's your key kind of, that's the big deal of ignoring your hives other than being privy to diseases and other things that might be going on in the brood. But uh, I think two to three weeks is closer. So that's why we want to do it before the 21 days, because if you've totally missed the boat, like when somebody says, hey, Fred, I have a laying worker, what's going on? Well, first of all, you put yourself in a report because that means you haven't been in your hives for more than three weeks. So for the backyard beekeeper, every two to three weeks, so from the 14th to the 21st day, that's your chance to find out what's going on because if it's queenless, you still have an opportunity to requeen the colony. And it doesn't mean that once you've got a laying worker that you can't take it over. And generally there are laying workers, lots of them. So by the time that's happened, now you have to do a massive hostile takeover with a bunch of brood and your new queen and do that all at the same time and get them to accept uh, a queen now because you've got laying workers that are going to resist that. Plus, what else has been going on? For 21 days, you've had nothing but attrition. In other words, the worker bees inside that hive have just been dying out and not being replaced. Every single day that you have a laying queen in your hive, you're producing on average 1,500 new workers. She is laying 1,500 new eggs a day. I know people will say 2,000, 2,500. Uh, it could be any number of eggs, but that's an average. So if you think about that, 1,500 workers per day are not being provided to that hive during um pollen and nectar source availability in the environment. So if you've not inspected and you've been without a queen for all of that time, you have a dwindling population of bees. And yeah, that's happened to me too, because I've thought that my bees were doing great, that there were lots of uh, workers in a hive, and they just kept trickling down, trickling down, and trickling down until you see very little activity on the landing board. You don't see a lot of pollen coming in. And uh, the comparison, of course, is that other colonies do have a lot of pollen coming in. They do have a lot of nectar coming in. And this one over here is just doing nothing. That's something that you need to inspect at a minimum. But uh, seven to 10 days, I recommend you do not do that. And here's why. If you inspect and disrupt your bees frequently, so let's say every week you're in that same hive every single week, you can force those bees to abscond. In other words, they consider the environment they're in unstable and they start making plans to leave. And that's when you open the hive and there's nothing in there but a few robbers. 
And so if it's been a colony that you've constantly harassed that way, and that's kind of the way I look at it, you're harassing your bees. Observation hives are for people like me who want to look at your bees every day, but they don't care because I'm not opening the hive. I'm just looking through glass. I'm peeking in on them. But if you're pulling apart the outer cover, inner cover, and starting to pull boxes and things like that on a weekly basis, you're stressing your bees and you're disrupting their workflow. So I always have a reason for doing that. So I consider less than three weeks would be a good benchmark. Keep records and remember what you saw, what was going on in the hive and uh, things like that. But that's it. Now, the next part of that was <clears throat> even with flow supers and regular medium supers on top of your brood boxes, um, I bear hug off my flow supers. So you would need to also. Uh, if you need to get down into your brood boxes and inspect them. Uh, so the thing is, your flow supers, mine aren't full right now. So this is an opportune time to pull them apart and look at the boxes down below. Now, when we get into August or September and there's a huge nectar flow on, one of those periods where you walk near the apiary and 50 meters away, you smell the honey in the air. I'm not inspecting any of those brood boxes at that time. So the other end of that is, as soon as I extract honey from a flow super, for example, which is the reference here, uh, the day after I've extracted that, pull it off and do an inspection if I, if I suspect that something is going on with the brood. Because at the end of the year, end of September, uh, I pull off those flow supers completely and then do what's called an evaluation, which a hive evaluation is looking at every single frame in the hive to see what's going on. And then that's it for the rest of the year, I don't bother them. So that's when they end up with a deep and then a medium and that's all their honey and resources or whatever's left of that nectar flow going through October and we have quite a bit still here. That's again, all for winter and restoring them because we're really kind of safe uh, when we think about the swarm opportunities there. I have had late September swarms in the past and they've actually done really well and made it through winter because that October um, provisioning opportunities still existed. So that's my thinking and that's what I do. Of course, that's here. Uh, but I think inspecting every week uh, is too much. That's being in your hive too often. Question number seven. <clears throat> I'm having an issue with a top bar hive. This is my queen's second year and all she's doing is making bees. The whole hive end to end is bees and brood it's 25 bars, brood surrounded by nectar and pollen, and I'm in Wisconsin, and should I make an excluder, split them, wait for the fall flow, and that's how it goes, and this is from Brenda. So um, I have a lot of questions again that don't often get answered with these. In fact, I probably should update maybe my question form so that people can give me some more to work with um, because I have horizontal hives here, and they all have single entrances and the entrance is at the very end of the hive. And for me, it's the south by southeast corner of the long horizontal hive. So it wouldn't matter if it's a top bar hive, you know, crown hive, uh, ivory bee hive. Um, and then of course the long Langstroth or the lands, they all are very predictable in how they lay out their resources. So entrance, brood, then we have a mixture of brood and uh, then we've got the pollen stores and we've got 
honey around the edges of that and then eventually the brood gets smaller and smaller and we have nothing but honey going beyond a certain point. And the reason that is, is because I don't have any other entrances on these horizontal hives. I don't have any top venting on any of the horizontal hives, even though the lay-ins hives came with them, I closed them all up. And uh, I even used double bubble, uh, that bubble insulation. I cut that to match the top of my horizontal hives, all of them. And uh, I use that as the gasket when I close the lid. So there's an entire surface of double bubble that is another vapor barrier, but it also retains the heat and protects them from the heat as well. So if it's cold outside, it keeps them warmer inside. If it's really hot outside, it helps them stay cooler inside by deflecting that upper entrance by that upper uh, cover, the heat that would come from the sun and the hostile uh, hot weather that a lot of people are experiencing. So my question is, if they're running brood through the full length of a 25 bar top bar hive, I highly suspect, I don't know, but I highly suspect there's other venting in the hive. A lot of top bar hives have vents at either end and they go up through the top bars themselves, of course, form the top boards of the hive. Maybe there's venting at each end because people think they need that but the bees actually don't. They can circulate that air through the hive themselves just fine and they'll get it right back out to a single entrance. So what I want to know from Brenda is, um, are there other vents in the hive or even other entrances? And I hope the answer, if the answer is yes, I highly suspect it is, then consider closing off whichever your least active entrances are and try to have your single entrance be at one end or the other not in the center either so uh, those are just my suggestions you can try them or not but uh, even at this late point right let's say this is going on would i recommend a queen excluder i do not and for the reason that i just described it's easy to make a queen excluder to use as a dividing board inside a horizontal hive um, because you just make it in the shape of the frame and it's just like your follower board, only it's got a queen excluder grill built into it, right? Um, I don't use that and it's because I don't need to because they're already doing that organization on their own without any restriction of your workers getting through the excluder. Even the best queen excluders provide some resistance to your workforce passing through that. And particularly if there's a single entrance because um, if they had a, another entrance on the hive, then the queen excluder would keep the queen from, of course, laying and following the ventilation that's going through the hive. So I don't, uh, don't do it. I don't do it personally. But I uh, have them just in case. I just don't need them. So that's pretty much it. Uh, I wouldn't make the queen excluder. I would wait for the fall flow. Um, if you have other top bar hives, it would be, sounds like a great opportunity to start to make another one. If you've got 25 frames of brood, I would personally knock that right in half and uh, concentrate the brood at one end. Maybe uh, remove the queen with your split like that. So leave the brood, especially open brood with eggs and take the queen out with a whole bunch of those frames, start another colony with a bunch of brood that's near, that's all capped, and of course near emerging from their worker cells, 
and start another colony and then let these continue to build up because if you've got 25 full and in partnership with that, I would reduce it to a single entrance. So just my suggestions and the good news is there may be other suggestions and, and there are many variations that all would work on some level. So that's just sharing what I personally would do, not using a queen excluder, single entrance, no venting, and then getting them to organize themselves that way. And if you did that without doing anything else, chances are you would start to see them backfilling the farthest in frames. Those that are furthest from the entrance would start to, as they emerge that brood, uh, they would start to backfill with nectar and continue to condense their brood more towards the entrance, I would think. So question number eight comes from Cliff. Vian, Oklahoma. Let's see, my question is this. Does a worker's abdomen get larger once her ovaries become active and make her more recognizable, possibly indistinguishable from a virgin queen? So the answer to that question, and here's because this alludes to what happened in the beginning. Uh, at 21 days being queenless, uh, worker bees do have ovaries, but they don't have very many of them, right? They don't have as many as the queen, so they're not going to look like the queen. Uh, so when they have these few ovaries that can only produce um, haploid offspring, right? So they have uh, males only. And so when they lay those eggs, uh, they don't lay a lot of them uh, because they're not like a queen. And so they only have a few ovaries. And when they do, it's not noticeable by us. They can still go through queen excluders and things like that. So they're not as big as a queen. Uh, some people say that they're too heavy to fly, and I don't even know if that's true, really, because I've not tested it, but uh, I kind of take people at their word. This is why one of the ways to get rid of laying workers is suggested to shake out all of your bees a well away from your hive, and that any laying workers that are in there would uh, then not be able to fly back to the hive because their abdomens are large, because their ovaries are active, and they're producing eggs. So I don't know that that works. The other thing is you're dumping out a bunch of your nurse bees and other bees that have never been out of the hive and they're just as likely to go to any other hive as they are to return to the one they came from because they've never seen it from the outside. So they're following pheromones. So if you do this close enough that they can follow the pheromones of their other workers as they fly back to the original hive, you would see a bunch of Nazanoff's glands in the air and and then fanning to get everybody back home. So they do follow that, but uh, I don't think that you can see them and know, oh, look, laying workers. Other than if you see her coming out of a cell uh, and uh, she's parked a bunch of eggs on the sidewall of that cell, then you can see kind of which one is the laying worker, but um, they're not visibly larger to the point where we could look at the frame of brood and go, mm, there's one and there's one and there's one. Uh, if they looked a lot like queens, then that would really baffle us because then we would uh, confuse them for a queen and think you're queen right when you're not. So queens are very distinctive. Their thorax is large. That's one of the things and it's very shiny and bald. So when you see the queen, other than the length of her abdomen, there are other physical traits. Also, when you look at her eyes, they are not the same as a worker's eyes. So the queen's eyes are a little more round and the worker's eyes are long and teardrop shaped. So um, there are a lot of other things that distinguish the queen from workers. So um, 
but yeah, it's an interesting question, but nope, you can't recognize them. So now we're in the fluff section. That was the last question for the day. So the first thing I want to talk about is I published a video this week. Uh, my grandsons were over here and the seven-year-old wanted to make sure that he was included. He wanted to make a video and he had spotted a swarm, which uh, I already knew about, but he was excited and wanted to know if we could make a video. So we did. And uh, we decided to play around with a net to gather those bees. But the interesting thing was, uh, I also let him pick the, pick the box that he thought the bees should go into. So I had a, uh, a bee caddy. It's a, it's a box that you put your smoker on and your hive tools in and your bee brush on. It was from Beersville Bees and it was sitting in the garage and uh, it, it is a nucleus box. That's the size of it. So he looked at that and he thought that that's what we should let the bees go into. So we loaded up with frames, we took all the tools off of it, and we set it on a hive stand, and we collected the swarm, and we put them on the landing board of that uh, Beersville Bees um, utility box. And of course, well, they rejected it. The swarm of bees was really large, so they weren't going to fit in there anyway. A bunch of them went in, explored it, inspected it, and make matters worse, they just thought that wasn't suitable. So then we went to a 10 frame deep box and we put it in the same spot and uh, we were letting the bees walk in just to see what they would do because we like to experiment. We could have shaken them in. I could have taken the queen. We saw the queen multiple times. We could have put her in some kind of queen cage, you know, roller cage, something like that. Captured the queen, put her inside and made sure they settled in there. But we decided not to do that. Uh, we decided we would just see what the bees do, let them pick out their spot. And so what should have been a half hour event or a 45 hour event ended up being several hours long. The video is not several hours long, but uh, what the bees were doing was interesting. And ultimately they rejected that one and they collected on the outside of the hive, even though it's not occupied by any bees. And then of course my grandson had to leave. And so we put a time-lapse camera on it and everything else uh, just to make sure we wouldn't miss anything. And uh, sure enough, they left. So they had satisfied their bivouac location requirement. So they had already been in a tree. They were on a branch, collected from the branch, and now they're put in front of a hive. And uh, But the interesting part is somehow the bees figured out that a colony of bees that is occupied but was queenless. So it was on my radar to replace the queen. I'm just way behind. I have more colonies of bees and I wanted to really deal with. So I wasn't thinking I would want to requeen that colony. So I was just going to kind of let their numbers run out, to be honest. It's in a 10 frame with a medium super. Uh, so 10 frame deep, medium super, uh, Apame hive. And uh, the bees just hadn't been doing that well. So I thought, eh, I'm not going to replace those. Where do you think the swarm went? They went the 100 feet uh, right to that hive and flew, landed on it, went in. So there's scouts the whole time that my grandson and I were looking at the hive, we tried to get them in. Uh, they had already picked another location and uh, they moved into it. So it was actually a win-win. It was a colony that the numbers were dwindling. They weren't queen right. And uh, so they needed a queen anyway. So here comes one with a couple of pounds of bees to boot. So it was kind of a surprise in a lot of ways. Uh, I thought they were just flying away. So but they ended up flying to my own apiary. So once again, it was reinforced that um, you can have beehives in your apiary that are suitable for a swarm and you may just find it occupied one day. 
The other thing is you can find a colony of bees that you know to be weak, that uh, maybe they've been queenless and you don't want to buy in a queen, so, and you also don't want to weaken another colony this time of year. So your choice is take that out. So they were borderline. There were too many bees and the colony was configured wrong to combine them with another colony. So I didn't want to do that. So again, I was just going to let them go. But so we find that somehow they can smell the hive and know. I don't know if they went in there and were robbing it a little or something else too. Whatever it was, they were familiar with the spot. The scouts approved of it. All the bees went there and took it over without a fight. So it's just like turning on the bee faucet and pouring them all on the landing board and having them all go in. Of course, my grandson missed all of that. But it was very interesting to know that your bees can find a queenless colony and then just join them when they're in swarm mode. So that was the first time I'd actually seen that happen. Another thing that's coming up this week is an interview with Cayman Reynolds. So we interviewed last night. It's a Zoom interview and we talk about all kinds of stuff. So I hope you'll tune in. That's going to go live over the weekend and uh, of course was pre-recorded. So we're going to talk about a lot of things. One of the things I want to tell you is for those that are looking for a convention and thinking about the Sevierville, Tennessee convention, <clears throat> there's going to be another one and it's actually by Cayman Reynolds and they're going to announce in that uh, Zoom interview, I'll tell you in advance that it's going to be the same dates but in a different location. So if you want to know that, check out that video. So number three, let's see. Checking on your swarms. Uh, those that uh, had bees that swarmed in June, you're keeping an eye on them now in July to make sure that they did mate, that they did, uh, when you had those that swarmed out, you might have hived those, but the ones that were left behind had to make new queens. So this is where we want to be looking at those hives and making sure that their queens are laying now. Some people get excited, jump the gun, buy a queen that's mated, fly her in, try to install her, only to have her stung to death. And that's because they did produce a new queen. She's just taking a long time to mature, fly out, get mated, and come back. And there are plenty of drones around right now, so the mating you know, potential is very high. Uh, there are also a lot of wild birds, dragonflies, and other things that can impact that. So if they catch the queen and she doesn't come back, they're queenless. So we need to be following up on any of the colonies you know to have swarmed or that you pull their queens from them uh, because they look like they were making preparations. You should see numbers increasing in the brood now. So what else? Um, I'm trying, so talking about uh, the resources in the environment. So right now they're a little low. If you look at bscape.org, which now is managed by Penn State, I noticed. Um, when you go in there and find out uh, what your low months are, where you live for pollen resources and to provide for your bees. And uh, so if you've started some nucleus colonies that could be struggling right now, uh, one of the things I'm testing out just for fun, I don't have to do it. I just want to see what the difference is. Hive Alive has those pollen patties. So I'm going to be putting two nukes side by side, same stages of development, created at the same time. And we're just going to do some with and some without these pollen patties just to see how that boosts them up. Because there is a lack of pollen coming in right now even though we have we have a lot of white clover and they do get pollen from that they are not getting pollen from the milkweed and the milkweed is already nearing its end i've noticed which seems a little fast to me but we're going to hit a bridge here where clover is everywhere so it's a great nectar source some pollen comes from it 
and uh, they're on the elderberries and uh, some other things I'm sure that I haven't seen, but this would be a great opportunity to see if we can keep one colony brood building just by putting in half a pollen patty on a nucleus hive and then one without to see how they compare. And if they consume it, we'll have our answer right there. If they ignore it, they're getting what they want already from the environment, doesn't matter. But I'll try to make a video about that. Please keep records of everything you do to every hive. I don't care if you have one hive. You think you're gonna remember everything and next thing you know, you don't realize it's been 30 days since your hive swarmed and that you lost your queen and you haven't thought to check in on them to see if they actually have a queen that's laying and that they're good to go. The other thing is because we're in a semi-pollen dearth, or for me, it's the lowest resource time of year. We're not completely flat, but uh, and we're not in a dearth as some people are. But if you're in a dearth right now, this is a great time to check for vir Varroa destructor mites, to look for other diseases in your hive. And again, because your brood would match the lack of resources in the environment, your queen may go off lay even for a while. And it could look like you don't have any egg production going on. And that could be true because they'll cut back on uh, laying eggs and the nurse bees won't be raising them because they don't have the resources to feed them. So great opportunity if it's also Varroa loaded to get those under control before we get into what for us is our next and upcoming nectar flow. When goldenrod starts blooming, the asters, Maximilian sunflowers, and all the other stuff starts kicking in, we have a serious nectar flow here. Now for some people, they have no fall nectar flow at all. So getting your varroa mites under control now, well ahead of the final brood that gets produced before you go into winter, will give them a huge boost by keeping all those uh, viruses out of your hives. So interviews are coming up. We're going to talk about um, treatment-free uh, queens that are being reared. So that's coming up also this week. And I have another video that's going to come out. Talk to one of my friends into uh, being stung by bees. So we're going to find out uh, what happens to you when you get stung by a bee. A lot of people get stung all the time. I don't seek out bee stings, but have you ever wondered what really goes on with your body when you're stung by a bee? that's coming up this week also and uh, that's pretty much it so i want to thank you very much for spending your time with me today those who are listening on podbean this is a podcast called the way to be and so i hope that you got something beneficial out of today and i hope that this weekend's great weather is going to give you an opportunity to keep up with your bees so thanks for watching have a great weekend if you have questions that you would like to have considered for future Q&As on a Friday, please go to the website, thewaytobe.org, click on the page also titled The Way to Be and fill out that form. And you never know, we might talk about things that are interesting to you someday. Thanks for watching.